Your recorded voice is your voice. Well, that that is a problem also. So are we there? Yeah, this is what you sound like to everybody. Just like this. In your head, you're listening to it's your sinuses and stuff. Stem part baleen whale. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Conklin. How art thou today? Yeah, good. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, that's good. Yep, me too. Good. No complaints. Today is a big podcast for you guys because you always are asking about this topic. Today we're going to talk about metrics. Metrics, 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 metrics. It is a big deal, metrics. I think it's a big deal because we have this kind of an ever-present unyielding belief that if we cannot measure it, it must not be true. Even though we know that's not true. We totally know that's not true, but that underlies everything. And if that's not enough, and I would think it would be, but it's not enough. We get people on us 24 seven asking us for metrics. And what they really want are these predictive metrics. Let's come up with a leading metric that will tell us the future. If we could come up with that, baby, oh, the world would be such a wonderful place to hang out. That's all I'll tell you. How are you doing? Because for me, geez, it's uh, the year's zooming by again. What is happening to us? I mean, we're getting older. and so I shouldn't talk about it. Let's not talk about that. Erase that last thing. We're, um, we're experiencing more and more life every single day. And as we journey around the sun which is what we do, you know, um, do we get wiser and older or just older? I don't know. I think wiser. I'm going with wiser because I definitely feel, I definitely feel wiser now than I used to. I think the best thing about getting older, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong or not, is uh, I sort of have less craps to give when people bug me. So there. So as far as the New Year's resolution, however, trying to find goodness in everything, that's actually been – that's a pretty good resolution. I might keep that one a while. That, that one's fun um, and and seems pretty helpful. Things are going marvelous. Jeez, uh, I can't complain about anything. So I'd like to, but I don't really have much to complain about except to tell you – oh, this isn't a complaint though – that we ought to probably start with the podcast. So today I'm going to introduce you to a, a long – Long friend of mine. In fact, we worked together at Los Alamos, and um, he's an expert in assessments and metrics. He's also a phenomenally interesting, almost a Renaissance guy. I mean, he's just—he's just—he does everything. This guy. His name's Ned Harris, and um, Ned and I got together and we're chatting, and I asked him if he would be in, be a part of the podcast, and so he went home and listened to some and didn't turn it down which is a plus, I would say. And, well, you'll see what we talk about because with Ned on the other side of the microphone, there are so many things you can kind of pick his brain about. But the one I wanted to talk to him most of all was about this notion of metrics, of, of assessment. And that's what he knows a ton about. He's an expert in assessment. So listen carefully and tell me um, – well, tell me if you don't learn – I'd be shocked if you don't learn anything at this podcast. 
That's how good this podcast is. So without further ado, I'll shut up. Other than to thank you for listening, tell your friends, become a part of the giant podcast community. There's like 12 million downloads. It's crazy. Know that I love you and that uh, I hope you love me, but I love what we do together. I like this community we built. So here's Ned Harris and metrics and reliability. So um, so tell me who you are and, and what's interesting about you, Ned. Well, I my name is Ned Harris. Um, I am a, a friend of Todd Conklin's, and that is cool. I've had the uh, privilege of working with Todd, which also meant I had the privilege of commuting with Todd. And that was fascinating because we would have astonishing conversations. And the part – I mean every day. I mean it was not – we never listened to the radio. The part that's really stuck with me the most is when I see a car that's driving completely recklessly or just too fast – I think to myself, that guy's on his way to the hospital because that is what Todd used to say. That's what I would always say. Whenever a car would zoom by us, I'd say, he's on, he's taking his child to the hospital. Oh no, it wasn't even, no, no, no. You just say he's on his way to the hospital. (laughs) And it was interesting because Santa Fe has a regional trauma center and Los Alamos has a regional trauma center. And so you and I were always driving between two regional trauma centers. But at some point I realized what you meant was. The way that guy's driving, he's going to end up in the hospital. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I think my intention was that he's driving like his kid was going to the hospital. Oh, what I got was that 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 is how you end up. How in the hospital. interesting that years later we would clear that up. Yeah, well, <laughs> we had to clear the air sometime. Um, so I'm a retiree from the lab, and I the lab I was sort of a hack statistician, did a lot, a lot, a lot of metrics. Um which really became my focus. Uh, my undergrad is in economics. My graduate degree is in assessment. And so I, that was a natural um, for metrics. And w- it was great because I, in order to generate them, at some point I had to understand them, which meant I had to visit work groups and I had to understand what made them successful. I had to understand what they needed in terms of trending information to be better at what they do. Um, and so I got exposed really broadly across the laboratory and enjoyed that a great deal. Why are metrics so important to us? Well, the, there's a, there's a cynical answer and there's a more straightforward answer. Let's do the straightforward answer. There's a belief that you can't manage what you can't measure, right? That's a, which I would suggest is sounds it sounds legit. That sounds true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's not true. Yeah, I agree. Um, because, you know, what we measure, of course, is what's easiest to measure uh, a lot of the times. And the things that are most important to measure are often immeasurable. I mean, if you pull the camera back a little bit and you think about our life satisfaction or something that truly is important, it's not measurable. Your bank can't tell you your um, – you know, you can't go get a report on it from the Social Security Administration. You can't ask someone to rate love on a scale of one to gazillion. Um, <laughs> and so, so the you know, when you really move into areas that are very, very important, um, unless it's unless unless you've got you know, unless it's temperature or something, unless it's distance or something, unless it's some sort of really concrete, discrete item, um, it, it you know, measurement is. Measurement's a problem. Um, certainly quantitative measurement is a problem. How do you measure things that don't happen? So, so, so one of the challenges, and metrics are just a gigantic topic everywhere, 
One of the challenges that people have is if you want a stable and reliable system, that means nothing is happening. Nothing bad is happening, right? So you can't measure bad things because bad things don't happen. Or, or when they do happen, they're pretty rare. Fair enough. I mean, oh, yeah. how do you, Absolutely. What do you do yeah. with this? So, you know, the seismograph, like, you know, we could sit here with a seismograph of um, the San Andreas fault or something. And it's, and it's rife with data and it's got all kinds of variants. It's got all kinds of noise in it. It looks like it would be really rich and it's really accurate and it's triangulated. And it's, it's one of the, it's probably, I mean, it's an amazing data source and it describes things perfectly, but they only make sense once they've already happened. Right there. And so back to your initial question of measuring things that don't happen. Well, you can measure things that do happen and you can measure things that happen well. And you have to be careful that you're not just using your profit and loss sheet, or you have to be careful that you're not thinking in terms of, um, you know, optimization. But, but, can I interrupt you? Cause you're making me think of a question. So you can measure things that go well, but mostly things go well. So isn't it really hard to measure the things that go right? Because there's so damn much of them. Um, no, no. I mean, it, I mean, you're asking a different question, perhaps, which is why bother? Um, because they're super easy to measure. Um, you know, that's and for a lot of stuff, it's really, really important. And you, you know, I may contrast with some of your thoughts, but I think uptime is really valuable. I think that successful, you know, interactions are really valuable. I think you know, positive customer experience is really valuable. Um, but you know, that's. That's business as normal. And so measuring business as normal, I think, is probably easy and worthwhile and can produce useful information. Um, it, metrics also move into a place where they become very ritualized and they become very symbolic. Okay, talk about that. That is super interesting to me. So so, so ritual – you know, ritual is great, actually. Ritual, culture lives in ritual. You know, we can think about, you know, the actual definition of the word meme, which is not a kitten. In well, a what is the definition of the word meme? Well, a meme, so, so I go back, I'm sure it goes back further, but I go back to about Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins um, had this notion that a meme was sort of a cultural gene and that it was a way in which um, culture and interactions and interrelations and institutions um, perpetuated themselves, how they prospered. And he went all in and he really took the gene metaphor for a meme, um, took the gene metaphor to a place where he applied evolution to it. And so you would have mutations and you would have competition and you would have inheritance. And so he saw, I mean, our culture today clearly is very different than our culture was for, say, our grandparents. And, you, you know, you could look at something like um, the language that has grown up around texting or the language which has grown up around the Internet, which is not – it wasn't – you know, no one told us to say LOL. I mean, this is something that evolved. It mutated. It survived. And it has – now there's rolling on the floor laughing. And I don't know my – I don't know all those things. But um, L-M-O-A. no. No, no. L M A O. I thought which you told, I think that one's dirty. I, yeah, I thought you said we should keep this clean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so so you look at you know so that's a very simple example of a cultural evolution where we've moved to a acronym based language that 
you know, has mutated and it has survived and it has, you know, reproduced in essence. And so the, so this whole notion of ritual, particularly within organizations, I think is worth resting on for a moment because ritual is how organizations have culture, how it gets transmitted, how new people get assimilated, how old people get fired, how, um, well, that's, I could have said that better. Um, no, that was nice. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so, so I, you know, within, within organizations, the, that notion of ritual is, is fine. Um, the problem with ritual though, is that we don't always have uh, mutation and, um, you know, competition. And so, so you can see, so and you can end up getting stuck or you can end up having a false culture where you present one sort of ideal of what your organization is like. Well, in reality, your organization is very, very different. Um, and so I, I think we can talk a little bit about why it's really, really important to um, change your metrics all the time. Well, so basically. talk about that because one of the things, Ned, I talk to people about is that in a complex system, and I don't know how familiar you are with complexity theorists kind of stuff, but there's a guy in Dalhousie University in Canada, kind of the Harvard of Canada, just in case you're mm. one of them, yeah, who tells me all the time, you can't measure a complex system with a fixed metrics because complexity is about the interface. It's about the coupling, right? Yeah. And so he uses this idea of vectoring metrics. What do you think about that? It sounds like something unique to Canada to me. Um, <laughs> no, I can't. I can't speak to vectoring metrics at all. Um, but you know, I can speak to Russian metrics, and you know, so there's this notion of like the 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 ideal going back, you know, to Trotsky or something. This ideal of you have this permanent revolution, right? Um, is I think is worth thinking about a little bit because. I agree with this notion of complexity and that a static measure is not going to capture anything useful about a com- really a complex environment. Right. Um, and I like that. I always have liked the notion of sort of triangulation where you measure different things at different times nice. and see where they overlap. And that's all that's, that's almost so abstract that it's not useful. Well, could, but, I mean, could you triangulate, could you take an organization and create, could you play with ex- micro experiment with those ideas? So, I'm, I'm reminded of one thing, which I thought was great, is when I was working at the laboratory in Los Alamos, one of the things that I stepped into was a years and years and year trend of organizational, internal organizational questionnaires and surveys. Right. And it was fascinating reading them because I learned so much about the organization. There was a period where everything had to do with teaming or total quality or diversity or cross-training right. and job sharing. Right. And, and reading the questionnaire was the most direct way for anyone to learn about what the focus of the management was at that time. And, and, and of course it moved, you know, safety remained fairly strong in there. Management quality remained pretty strong in there, but all of the sort of all of the other questions that were a little more dynamic really showed what was culturally important to the laboratory at any given moment. 
And that, I mean, you could not, I could not have gotten onboarded more quickly than just by reading the questionnaires from prior years. Um, and so that's perhaps an example of what you're discussing. Perhaps it's a little too simplistic. No, I think that's super interesting. You could look at those, those old employee surveys, I think we call them. If you look at them backwards, they really are artifacts of, of what the organization – of what the flavor of the month was for the entire organization, right? Yeah. And, you know, and it's – it's if you actually believe that organizations evolve and change, then it might not actually even be the flavor of the month. Nice. These might have been the things that were in, you know, the mutations that were yeah, then nice. in competition that then were able to propagate. Yeah, touche. Nice. That's, so. that's nice. That's nice. So what do we do with this metrics problem? Can we triangulate? Are metrics predictive for non-predictive events? <laughs> no. Okay, yeah, so That's called tautology. Fair enough. Okay. Got yeah. me there. Okay. So tell me more. So, okay. So, so metrics are, they, they're, you know, we're speaking so abstractly about something which is so large that it's a little hard to pin anything really you know, useful on this. So, so can I, let me, let me define it down a little. Thank you. Because that might help us. So almost everywhere I go, the organization is desperately seeking what they call leading metrics. Mm. That's as fine of a point as I can put on it. Yeah. Baby. I would, I would say that there are places where you can have a leading metric. I've done metrics looking at, um, you know, information technology, detection of uh, events, detection, detection of, um, of uh, you know, I'll just we'll leave it at events. And so there are places where you can, you set your tools in such a way that you start getting lots and lots of false positives. And you take your, a lot of organizational energy and you go off and you chase down these false positives and you start realizing, oh, that was, you know, that port scan was harmless or that was actually someone who was, you know, doing a, a backup routine to an external server or this wasn't exfiltration. And so then you change your tools, you change, you know, change your sensitivity a little bit and to a point where you start recognizing that, oh, at this point we're about to start getting a lot of false negatives. And so we're getting hacked, we're getting infiltrated, we're getting whatever, data is exfiltrating, and we're no longer sensitive to it. And so there is a way to, or at least, you know, hypothetically, academically, there is a way to look at your, to look at your tools and start saying, well, what level of uh, false negative is acceptable? Do we have, you know, sort of a defense in depth such that someone does a port scan and they successfully find an open port, but we're able to stop it somewhere down the track? At what level do we not? Can we miss that port scan and still be okay? Resilience. Yeah, resilience. And so you, so I would, and I haven't, I did a presentation on this, which I've, of course, quickly forgotten. Um, but there's, just by using sort of control chart methodology, you can start saying, okay, we our tolerances are such that we can accept some false negatives. We're willing to run down some false positives, but we don't, but we want to strike that balance. And I think if you're able to strike that balance and if you're able to go back and say, you know, go back to your logs and see which of these events actually were important that you missed, um, then I think you can end up with a metric that may be forward looking. I think you may be able to start, you know, being able to generalize. And that doesn't stop you, you know, that doesn't stop the hundred year flood. It doesn't stop the, you know, it doesn't stop the, 
zero day that you had no, you know, you had no knowledge about, but I think that there is, I think you can at least start to get a sense of how your tools are tuned and how, and if your tools are tuned, then you, then you should be able to infer some predictive quality. So take me back to the San Andreas fault. Are there leading metrics to identify earthquakes? Well, there are no elephants right now anywhere near the San Andreas Fault. The <laughs> wild ones. And they're known, you know, in Indonesia, they see that they actually are pretty good. They they, they have a foreshadowing of earthquakes. Yes, it's true. So, and, uh, what's that fish that they just found in Japan coming up from the bottom that the fishermen found that they see as an earthquake indicator? We can talk about this later. Yeah, we should. I can tell by your face that you're not... You're not as attuned to the Japanese fisherman fish story as I am. No, but you know, I'm probably prepared to talk about it because I do have butter, white wine, and capers. <laughs> Which really are the three essential ingredients. Lemon juice. That we, we struggle so desperately to, to, to solve for uncertainty. And we struggle so desperately with metrics to do that. Is it a, is it a fool's errand? Are there benefits? Um. Mathematically, probably not so much. Culturally, I think there are. Um, I think that I think that asking people to measure, to asking people, you know, what what, how do they know if they've been successful? How, how do they how do they want to be judged when they go home at the end of the day and they feel like they've done a great job? Is there, is, you know, can th there's some of those things that we can measure, and so I think that is probably worthwhile. Um, in terms of safety metrics, it's crazy because you're back to measuring things that don't happen or being able to predict the future and it, it, being able to predict the future. I mean, it's, it's a, a neat trick, but it's not a numeric trick. It seems like kind of more of a movie trick, like a, like a good science fiction movie. The team can almost always predict the future, but I don't know if it exists in real life. Well, those are just the movies that succeed. The movies, <laughs> the, I mean, there are a lot of movies that fail. Fair enough. Well, talk to me about the the problem with small numbers. Well, the problem with small numbers is, I mean, and we we want them to be small numbers because there are things like serious injuries. We, define you know, define it for us a little. When we when we talk about problem with small numbers, that's meaning. I mean, that's a term of art. What do we mean by that? Well. I'm not sure I can quite do a definition on the fly, but I can give you a couple of examples. So I'll give you my secret weapon. If you're ever writing a definition on the fly, just say this phrase, the degree to which, and then that makes it official. Ah, well, the degree to which we can analyze numbers. Perfect. Yeah. And and so you, if you, if you have, you know, imagine a very large data set, very robust, lots of variants, lots of, lots of noise in it. And you can start talking about a population. You can start talking about things that are within that population and things that are outside of that population. And you have, a, you know, a, a lot of information to work with. And so if you, you know, so back to the seismic data, you've got this incredible amount of seismic data and you can start saying how deep things are and how frequently they happen. And you can start talking with confidence about at least descriptive statistics. And that's a distinction maybe we should rest on for a second because that's almost all metrics are distinct or are, are descriptive statistics and it's, you know, counts and frequencies and how far things say, you know, what the spread of the data looks like. And all of that is just going back and sort of analyzing things that have probably already happened really. Um, 
Whereas an inferential statistic would be the people's likelihood of doing well in the future if they go to college, for instance. And so we can start looking at a current piece of data and start predicting a future outcome by inferring it. And there's wonderful statistical tests. We always want to do that. We go to the grocery store and the parking lot's full and we think, oh, my goodness, the store is going to take forever. You know, we're inferring all this stuff. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're not. And so statistics is great because statistics will say, oh, there's also a movie theater that shares this parking lot or there's all, you know. And so suddenly at this point you can start saying, oh, I can't infer anything about the inside of the store from the outside of the store. Um, But back to small numbers. So imagine if um, you had the opportunity to, you know, double your money and you had a dollar. I'm with you so far. Okay. You've got my interest. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I can cash this check, Todd, but <laughs> if we doubled your money, you'd have $2. And so you end up with these, you know, uh, so, you know, and that's, let's even pick up, let's even pick something a little bit simpler. Let's say, let's say, you know, an increase of 10% for you and me or an increase of 10% for Bill Gates. And suddenly you end up with this notion of like, oh, you take a small number and you multiply it by a factor and you end up with a small number. Whereas you take a large number and you multiply it by a similar factor, you can end up with these really rather, rather, rather large numbers. Yeah, yeah. So if you're observing one worker who's doing one task and you're getting single data points, you've spent a pleasant day, I'm sure, but you probably don't have anything you can generalize from. Right. Whereas if you're watching a lot of people and you have a lot of this sort of information and you've watching them do a variety of tasks and the tasks all, you know, some of them involve the same skills, some of them involve other skills, but you've got this robust data set, you can start using terms like outliers and you can start saying, okay, either this, which I would say the outliers typically are the most interesting thing. Although, a lot of people would say, oh, that data does not belong with all this other data. We're going to put it aside and do our analysis on things that we consider to be typical. And so – but I think really all the interesting stuff is in the outliers. The typical stuff is kind of boring and not necessarily useful or not necessarily beneficial, whereas all the stuff that seems anomalous and seems peculiar – whether really good or really bad or really lots and lots or very little, whatever the extremes of the scale are, that typically is where interesting things happen. Um, That's where discoveries are made and that's where accidents happen. And that's where, um, you you, you know, the incredible game-winning score happens or the ball that bounces off the field post. And so it's really that, that if I were, Looking for interesting things in data, I would probably be more interested in the outliers initially. That's, that's so strange to me, though, because we tell we tell our organizations on the quality side, you know, when we when we collect quality data, to actually ignore the outliers. Yeah, but in fact, I agree with you. I think the outliers, that like a fatality accident, is an outlier because oh. normally people don't die. That's kind of the definition of accident. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, okay. right. And I wonder, I wonder how we how we craft the value to understand these outliers as, as really kind of weak signals to potential high learning. I, you know, there's a funny handoff and I don't want to sound like a Philistine, but there's a really funny handoff between quantitative data and qualitative data. Tell me more now I'm listening. And so quantitative data is what, you know, we we want our metrics to be basically, you want your profit and loss statement, which is a 
great metric. Your statement of owner's equity, that's a great metric. You want those things to be, you know, quantitative. Quantitative. You want those to have number and math and reproducibility, and you want all that real rigor behind them. But if you get to a situation where suddenly you've got uh, you know a lot more waste than you used to have, or a lot more um, defective material, or a lot whatever whatever it happens to be, at some point you have to make that jump and say, knowing how much this is costing or knowing how much we're spending is not giving us any information and that you need to jump over and start looking at, you know, the whys and the, 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 you know, what, what actually happened. The context, right? The context, there you go. That's the word context. And so that becomes, that becomes very, very important. And if you've ever, you know, like for instance, if you've ever opened a bank statement, and this happens to me all the time, I say that, well, that can't be right. And so I've got this sort of notion of sort of face validity. You're cracking me up here. Hardly ever do statisticians crack me up. Well, I'm not. I'm a not a statistician. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Metrics experts I'm crack a, me up. I'm a. I'm an unlicensed therapist. <laughs> um, so the so so at some point you know you've got this sort of notion of face validity. There are things that you can expect. There are things you can anticipate. There are things that seem right, and so you sort of have this sense of oh yeah, that, I would I would have expected that outcome, or I would have expected this outcome. And so occasionally you you say whoa that doesn't seem right, and that's a, a fascinating moment because you've dumped the quantitative data basically the bank statement clearly is wrong and you've jumped over to the sort of qualitative an impression a you know what i don't even know quite all the quite all the things to put around it but it's you sort of have you've got estimation you've got approximation you've got sort of intuition and we would like to think it's predictive sometimes and um so that is is a, a, a probably a really positive outcome from quantitative metrics is to have this sense that well, I'm not so sure about that. And it's a skill that I instill, you know, I do my best uh, to instill that into um, people. I'm a GED tutor. I'm a literacy volunteer. And so I do my best to try to get people when they're doing math to say, oh, that doesn't seem right, you know, and sort of to circle back and see what happened. Um, and that's great when you're doing math, when you're doing division. Um, but when you move out into the world and you've got live data and you've got live people and you've got, um, you know, organizations and you've got, you know, new software platforms and you've got whatever, the, that sort of that qualitative leap of saying, boy, I'm not sure that's right. That doesn't seem right is interesting. You can find mistakes that are in algorithms perhaps, or you can find bad data. You can find that you're really collecting the wrong data and or misrepresenting what the data might be able to tell you. Um, but the other piece of it is that, it, from my experience, is you interject a bunch of bias. And I had very strong feelings about, or, you know, it was an organization I was very familiar with, how they should function, how managers should function, where problems reside, where problems manifest. And so when I was – some measurements I would come up with and I would think, oh, that that's that doesn't seem right. And there were times when I was just sort of being my power to the people sort of hippie self and not – and actually the measurements were measuring what I thought they were measuring. But my – you know, my social, structural, cultural uh, framework suggested that things should be different and more idealized. And so when you make the jump between qualitative or rather, rather quantitative and qualitative data, 
you start, it starts becoming kind of subjective. And if you're good at what you do, subjectivity is that rocks. That's excellent. And if you're not very good at what you do, subjectivity is really disastrous. Is that where things make sense prima facie? So they make sense on their face, yeah. so face validity or whatever. Yeah. 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 So that's got value. Oh yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 It's got value, but you have to be careful. I mean, if you, I mean, if you're a whole, if, I mean, if your whole goal is to have a really high performing workforce and your only way of realizing that is to hire people that look just like you or act just like you or have just your background or have just your whatever, then you could walk away with this incredible warm and fuzzy feeling yeah, that you yeah. built this great organization when in reality you've, you know, built and you've multiplied your own foibles. Which, which to, to an extent would be kind of attractive to hire people just like you. Uh, how's that play in with confirmation bias and, and metrics? Well, in confirmation bias, um, I don't, where, where were you going with that, Todd? So you, you, you clearly were going You measure place. things that you think you want to see. And because you want to see them, you find metrics that actually confirm what you want to see. Yeah. So I'll give you a great example of confirmation bias. It's the one I think of all the time. So you buy this new car. And before you bought this new car, you research and you do all the work and you find it's the greatest car and you really want it. You buy it. You get a good price, right? It's a good deal. You pull off the lot and suddenly you see tons of the car you just bought. Everyone's driving them around. Before you bought the car, you never saw them. But after you bought the car, you start seeing that red Maserati everywhere. That's kind of confirmation bias. Huh. <laughs> Tell me more. Huh. Oh, oh. So, uh, you know, the, the, the example I might reach for you, rather than Maserati is, you want is I, would, I would do the Lamborghini. One. No. <laughs> you um, want, another no. one is if you put a fire protection person on an investigation, you will find fire protection problems. Yeah. If you – if there's a gun hanging over the mantelpiece, someone will die by the end of the second act. Yeah. Um, so no, I think I think the online reviews are the best at this, especially expensive things. So someone goes out, you know, hey, I'm going to get a hot tub or something expensive, and then they do this online review, and of course every. Of course, they have to say it was good. They had first of all, they can't really you can't go up, compare ten different hot tubs or twenty different hot tubs, so you can't really rank a rate. Right. And so you get one, and it was the one you got, and you have to sort of support your own decision. And so the temptation is to say, "Oh, five stars." Excellent example. And and it doesn't even leak very much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's a really good example. How how does confirmation bias play in in our organizational metrics? It's got to play. Of course, it does. Of course it does, you know, because we we there's there is an ideal state. We know that there's somewhere there's you know red, green, yellow. Somewhere there's something good. Somewhere there's something bad. And so, I would say that particularly, I think I think face validity is probably a good place to look at this. Where does something seem right? Does something feel right? Does something look right? Um, you know, what's what's what kind of vibe are you getting from the data? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is the place where we are more likely to adjust metrics that clash with our internal view of an organization and more likely to reinforce metrics that support our view of an organization. And if you have an organization that is really very highly reliable and that's you're really working towards being high reliable, then you're going to look for metrics that have kind of low standard deviations, right? You're going to yeah. be looking for things where everything sort of stays steady eddy. And if you end up with you know massive swings – 
you're going to start saying, oh, I'm not sure my data is good. I'm not sure I'm measuring what I think I'm measuring. And you may take a second run at it. So if you had, this is going to be an unfair question, but it's an important question. If you had advice to give to an organization that was really struggling with this metrics question, what would you tell them? Well, I would anyone who's struggling with almost anything, I would encourage them to go back to first principles. And I would go and say, you know, what is your organization do and what is your you know what's your what's your unit of measure is your unit of measure a dollar is your unit of measure a widget is your unit of measure um you know a person's development or a community impact you know you go back ankle sprain ankle sprain man i could we could set up a great company there's enough ice around (laughs) the ankle sprain company the splint co splint co (laughs) um and so so you so you you got to go back excuse me <clears throat> got to go you know you'll your surest path is to go back to first principles what does your company do why does it do it who cares that you do it how do you communicate with the people who do care and so that that is probably a very good place to start a metrics program that has grown and grown and grown and gotten more and more and more robust and more and more and more refined um is is more from my perspective more likely to fall into the sort of symbolic or ritualized world. Yeah. And so that's kind of why I like this continuous revolution thing. That's such a cool idea. You know Todd no one has ever asked me um how to have a successful marriage, but I'll tell you. Even though you didn't. <laughs> and so no, I think that I think the way the the best thing you can do with someone it just that's was called a segue. No, it's good. Yeah, I think the best thing you can do with someone else is learn something with them. And I think that that's sort of, that's kind of my continuous revolution model is you don't end up with a great revolution, you know, great relationship and say, okay, let's change nothing. This is perfect. Just like this. We'll let's go to bed at the same time every day. Let's eat the same food for dinner every night. You know, that's, that's not how it works. How it works is you say, oh, let's do ballroom dancing. Let's learn archery. You know, let's go backpacking. And you go off and you start introducing new things and you start introducing things that you learn and master and discuss and whatever else, or even, you know, a new, even a new movie could do this. And so to end up with metrics that are absolutely, absolutely stable is not, it's not a, you're not in a developmental spot. And even if you're poring over them and reading them and really thinking about it, I would still argue that you're not priming yourself for any sort of change or evolution. Or um, and so I, I I like the notion of of shaking them up. And maybe we're back to that Canadian concept of vectoring, where you end up with measuring various things, or yeah. you end up sh- shifting your point of view, or triangulating. Yeah, yeah. I and, think we might have a perfect marriage today, or yeah, you and I. Yeah, we've learned something together. How about that? Thanks for a great podcast, man. You're welcome. Will you come back? Of course. I can't even wait. Thank you. That's my buddy Ned. What do you think? We've been friends for years. We really, he was totally not lying. We used to carpool in the old and old and old days. Years and years ago, we'd drive up together to the laboratory, and it was really fun. We'd talk about everything. So that was great. And it was even more fun to get him to talk about metrics and kind of the macro. So if you want to hear more with Ned, just tell me because it would be an honor to get, bring him back on and talk more about this. I, I, I thought this was a really – this is a really good podcast. I enjoyed this one immensely. I hope you did too. Sorry for going a little long. I owe you nine minutes and 19 seconds. Until then, though, 
Get caught doing something good, man. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness sakes, be safe.